Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Yvonne Fisher turned 18 years of age recently. By age seven, Yvonne had had two heart transplants. The first one just weeks after she was born. Second one, as I said, just before she was seven. She's 18 now, and she's planning her life. Yvonne Fisher joins us along with her mother, Tamara. Yvonne, here's the, here's the road question. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm... Excited for this interview. That's, uh, me too. I'm very excited to talk to you. It, yours is a, a, an absolutely tremendous story. And uh, I know the David Foster Foundation was very much instrumental in, in your success. Um, uh, Tamara, I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment. But today, um, Yvonne, you're planning your future at 18 years of age, and yet you had two transplants, heart transplants, before you reached the age of seven. The first one, obviously, you can't remember. But the second one is you were heading toward age seven. How, how aware were you of the challenges you were facing in your life? I was not aware at all. I just, I just thought it was another thing I was going to have to go through. And it just, it, it was just a thing. It didn't matter. Well, it mattered, but not really. So this was just your life. This is what you were used to. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was just going to be another hospital visit. And how you said you're fine now, you're feeling good, and you're planning your future, so things are looking extremely positive for you. Mm-hmm, exactly. Tamara, how did you find out that Yvonne, your daughter-to-be, would be born in need of a heart transplant? And I can't imagine what it's like to receive that message. Um, well, to receive the message was <clears throat> absolutely devastating. It was shocking because she was my first pregnancy. And I found out uh, actually during my first ultrasound that something was severely wrong with uh, my baby's heart. And then each uh, ultrasound showed a different defect, a different issue. And then it just became apparent that the uh, baby would need a heart transplant. So they told you that your baby would need a heart transplant immediately, as soon as she was born, yes? Uh, Evan was actually listed for a heart transplant while I was still pregnant with her. And and how quickly? I said a matter of weeks. Was that correct? Uh, within a matter of weeks of Yvonne being born, the first heart transplant took place. Uh, just around five weeks was when she had her first heart transplant. I've talked to a number of people about that, about your situation and, and what you both experienced and what you're living, how you're living now. And not one person I spoke to could really absorb that within such a short period of time after birth, there would be a heart transplant. Walk us through the, I guess, the emotional um, circumstances that you were, you're dealing with and, and then how well did it work out? Uh, were there no complications? Was it a very successful surgery? Well, it was a successful surgery in the fact that a heart became available at the exact moment that 
Evan needed a heart. She had been um, on a spiral of ill health and um, had just turned a corner of a window being open where she was healthy enough that if a heart came available, she was able to receive it before she had deteriorated too much. And it was that moment that the heart became available, literally within a 24-hour stretch of her absolutely needing a heart. Um, her first heart transplant became available. It was difficult in the sense that because Evan was only five weeks, the heart was larger for her infant frame. Um, so the sternum had to be kept open for quite some time afterwards. And it was definitely touch and go for a while. There were nights where uh, the pediatric cardiologists were camped out beside her bed, just keeping a watchful eye on her. And then um, she turned a corner once again and just started healing and thriving. And there was literally no turning back. She was healthy, uh, regular routine checkups. And then just before she turned seven was when she had her heart attack out of nowhere and needed her second transplant. I can't imagine how you emotionally, let alone physically, but emotionally go through this and uh and in combination, I'm sorry, I've been saying Yvonne, it's Evan. Evan, uh, <laughs> Evan, when you hear your mom, and I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but when you hear your mom explain the earliest years and days and weeks and years of your life, how does that impact you? Whenever I learn new details about it, I, it shocks and bewilders me, like how, I, how much I really have to grow through. And when I hear my mom talk about it and sometimes she tears up I tear up because that's my mom yeah and so uh, you're planning your future can you tell us a bit about what you uh, what you plan to do currently I'm taking a gap year to just relax after everything I've gone through but next year once I go back to school I'm planning to become a child life specialist fantastic and uh, and your health is, is as you said, your health uh, is is good and strong now. Yeah, been better than ever. Evan, I know you want to, uh, and and I know Tamara, you want to speak as well about this. But Evan, first of all, David Foster and his foundation so important to you. Um, sh share with us, please, what you think of uh, what uh, David Foster's foundation has been able to do for you and for um, for other kids who are suffering. The David Foster Foundation has, they've been a second family to me since forever. It, it warms my heart how much they help me and others just survive and, yeah. Tamara, what about the David Foster Foundation? Uh, the David Foster Foundation, like Evan said, literally is um, a second family to us. They have been there through thick and thin through us. We have gladly volunteered for everything for them because honestly, I've said this numerous times, Evan and I would not be who we are. Evan would not be here if it was not for the David Foster Foundation. They 100% allowed myself to be there for Evan when I needed to be uh, to to focus on her. I didn't have to worry about being back home. I knew that everything was going to be taken care of so that I could take care of what was important to me at that time, which was Evan. There was a hundred percent focus on Evan because the David Foster foundation took such good care of us to ensure that 
our needs were taken care of back home because Evan's transplant, her first transplant was done in Toronto at sick kids hospital. And her second transplant was done in Edmonton at the Stollery hospital. So for both transplants, I was sent to a different province and the David Foster foundation took care of myself and my needs in those provinces, as well as my needs in my home province. It was amazing. Like, I can't ever, ever say enough positive, amazing things about what the foundation has done for myself, Evan, and Evan's brother, Bauer. A great Canadian effort as well. David Foster, um, for people who may not be aware, is one of the world's greatest music producers and uh, and he's obviously a musician and pianist and has the David Foster Foundation, which is helping uh, kids particularly who are in in medical uh, need. I As I'm talking to you, I'm just... It's almost overwhelming, really, to consider everything that you've experienced medically, a heart transplant just five weeks into life, a heart attack just before your seventh birthday, a second heart transplant, and here you are some uh, 11 years later planning your future. I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful success story. Uh, Some final words, uh, Tamara. I'm sure you want to talk uh, about the doctors and the nurses and the the medical teams who... uh, who provided what their professionalism and their caring? Oh, the hospitals, the medical staff, the every member of from physiotherapist to cardiologist to nurses, every single team member. We've developed such a relationship with them. We've had such wonderful support and wonderful care, again, through three different top hospitals, as Evan's been followed here in Victoria, or sorry, in BC at Children's Hospital. Um, We've just had the best care straight across the board. I mean, again, it's she's living proof of our medical care that she's received between the love and care of the foundation, our family, our friends, and the medical Miracle workers, um, we have our own little miracle right here. There's never enough words, never enough gratitude to express. All we can do is just keep smiling and keep living our happy lives and shooting for Evan's goals. Yeah, you know, we live in a world today that is so uh, unpredictable with so many negative situations going on in the news cycle. To hear such an inspiring story such as yours is really uplifting. And Evan, if I can ask you just to do one more thing, we may very well have children listening right now who have health conditions, medical conditions that they're trying to come to grips with and their families are trying to help out with. What would you say to the kids and their families? I would say to their families that... I guess it's really hard to say because every family goes through different things, but the main thing would be is to be hopeful and look at the bright side. There's always, uh, what did I say, silver lining in every cloud, right? Masi Alinajad is an Iranian-American journalist. She's the author of The Wind in My Hair and a women's rights activist. She's been on this program with us before. And Masi is also the target of the Tehran regime, which has tried to abduct her on a number of occasions. And earlier this year, the FBI arrested an individual close to Masi's home who was carrying a loaded AK-47 that had no serial numbers. He said he was just scouting the neighborhood for something or other. So, Masi Alinajad, very brave uh, woman who's taking on the regime. Masi, thanks for coming back on the program. You're aware of the nationwide support for the Iranian people in Canada. Yesterday, it was just coast to coast. 
I'm so happy finally, yes, Justin Trudeau actually took to the streets and uh, alongside the family members of the Ukrainian airplane was shot down by, uh, by Revolutionary Guards in supporting Iran protests. Uh, I have to say that this is the moment that Iranian people need action. Uh, to be honest, the change of his tone was amazing. But it's still, there is a lot that he can do. Masi, what's going on on the streets of, uh, of Tehran and Iran now? The, the uh, security forces said two days ago that uh, this was yeah, going to be the final day that they would allow protests. Yeah, the security forces actually attacked more than 20 universities. They killed more than 300 people, arrested more than 14,000 innocent protesters many of the students are being kidnapped and we're not sure where they're being held and schoolgirls like high school students are being kidnapped and arrested 15 years old students are in prison and we have no idea about their condition so that is why a lot of people in iran are very very happy that they see when justin trudeau actually turned out to uh to the protest, Iranian protest, which was taking place in Canada, he mentioned about regime change, but he was not actually um, addressing that what kind of action he will take to help and support Iranian people in in practice, not just in in theory, because many people still believe that these students are getting killed by revolutionary guards, the same guards that shot down the Ukrainian airplane, and it should be in the terrorist list by Canadian government as soon as possible. What is it that gives the Iranian people such courage to face down live fire oh from, from these security forces and, and, and people you know, dying in the streets, fighting for their freedom and trying to rid themselves of this regime? What, what gives them the, the, the power and the strength to carry on, Masi? You know, this is a very good question. Sometimes I myself, being in touch with all those teenagers for years and years, I get goosebumps and I get shocked by their bravery. But let me just answer your question through their own words. Many students, like schoolgirls, before going to the streets, they make videos. They send it to their neighbors, their sisters. Some of them, they send the videos to me. Very heartbreaking, saying that, we are not sure whether we're going to come back home or not, but we don't want to live with humiliation. We are fed up, you know. So these are the generation actually chanting in the street saying that we're not going to leave the country. We're going to stay here. This is our homeland. Today that I'm talking to you, one of the well-known rappers, Tumat Salehi, got arrested, and he was the one, he was actually uh, in the middle of the streets among protesters, putting himself in danger, not only, um, you know, um, singing against the Islamic Republic, he was the one singing against the apologists outside Iran, those lobbyists outside Iran in Canada, in America, who were trying to get a negotiation, a nuclear deal with the Islamic Republic. And now his life is in danger. But before going to prison, he left the video and he said that, don't talk about me. Talk about the streets. Talk about people taking back to the streets and ask the Western countries to recognize Iran's revolution. This is their goal and their hope. And their message is this. We are, we have enough. We are here to end the gender apartheid regime.
Yeah. You know, you, you talked about the young girls, the young women who are in the streets. These are the young women who are, are like the 22-year-old uh, who was murdered by the regime. Um, and 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 they're, and they're, these young women are just fighting and going out in the streets and challenging, challenging the security organizations, challenging the, the regime and saying, essentially, we're here and we're not going to back off. We want our freedom. We want our, our rights. And, and this is where the Western governments have to step forward. I'm glad Mr. Trudeau is finally expressing support. But this is what the Western governments need to do. Support the people of Iran. What specifically do you want them to do? That's a very good question. Look, I mean, it was a good step, but trust me, Justin Trudeau and the leaders of democratic countries, they can do a lot because these are like teenagers are getting killed. Kids, kids. children are getting killed. So what they can do is clear. First, they have to cut their ties with the Islamic Republic. They have to ask their own allies to kick out all these Islamic Republic officials, diplomats from the Western countries. And another thing, very, very specific. I want Justin Trudeau. I want President Biden. I want President Macron and the leaders of democratic countries to call for a day, international march for people of Iran, for children and kids and teenagers of Iran who are getting killed, for demanding freedom and dignity. Let's talk about the reality of food insecurity. Let's talk about the reality of people who depend on the generosity of their fellow Canadians. And I'm talking about food banks. Let's talk about the situation facing Canada's hungry. On Thursday, this past Thursday, Food Banks Canada released its 2022 Canada Hunger Count report. And food bank use in this country has risen to its highest level in history in 2022. One-third of food bank clients are, you know what the next word is, don't you? Children. Hunger Count 2022 also lists the solutions which Food Bank Canada says must be adopted and reached to address rising record food insecurity. Kirsten Beardsley is the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Food Banks Canada. Ms. Beardsley was with us last weekend, and we talked a bit about this report that was coming, and here it is. Kirsten, thank you, and how are you today? Thanks for having me again. I'm, I'm well. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm well, and I, 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 I thought we'd be seeing numbers similar to the ones that your report released, but I'm still shocked at the, at the size and the reality of of what's going on in this country. So let me just quote, Canada's food banks straining under historically high demand that crested to almost 1.5 million visits in March 2022, up 35% compared to pre-pandemic visits during the same time period in 2019. 1.5 million visits in one month. It's it's devastating. And, And as you said, I mean, in some ways, we're all feeling the pressure. Um, all of our budgets are stretched, but to see these numbers and realize that behind each one of them is is a person, is the story, a heartbreaking story of someone who's just not able to make ends meet. It's it's hard to, you know, even for those of us who are in this business, it's really hard to stomach um, this this growing level of need in Canada. Yeah, I just had a thought as you were speaking. What happens to those 1.5 million people, or the 1.5 million visits? in one month if the food banks aren't there then what i mean 
I can't even fathom. I know communities would come together, but that's, and that's, you know, that's what the original food bankers were trying to do. They were trying to come together to find a solution. Their neighbors had fallen on tough times. It was the early 80s, you know, pretty tough t- economic times then as well. And then, um, you know, they, I think they thought they would, you know, our doors would be shut. They'd collect the data. They'd figure out who these folks were and we'd find some solutions to support them out of poverty. And here we are. 41 years later, and the situation is more dire than than ever before. Yeah. We're a first world country. We're a food basket country, supposedly. We shouldn't have people missing meals and worrying where the next meal is coming from. And bless you for doing what you're doing, but people shouldn't be saying, without the food banks, we wouldn't have anything on our table tonight. Um So, food bank clients who reported employment as their main source of income increased to 14.1% versus 12.5% in 2021. So, employed people making a living, making a salary, earning a salary, they represent 14% of your clients. So, clearly, we we have a food issue here, a security issue. We also have an income issue here, and we heard yesterday from our guest on the issue of, uh, of food insecurity, that income is more important to the equation than rising food prices. Would you just address that, please? Just, the, just who's in most need? Because you talk about, the report talks about seniors accessing food banks, um, 8.9% versus 68 before the pandemic. One-third of food bank clients are children, representing approximately 500,000 food bank visits in March of this year, kids. Students' visits to food banks increased to 71.1% in 2022. These are numbers. Put, put some context to this, please, Kirsten. Yeah, so these, you know, the, the workers is an interesting one. It's still, you know, it's still low. 14% of the people who use food banks are working, but what is shocking there is it's growing. Whereas it had been sort of a steady number, um, it's growing now. And then when you add folks who are on EI, employment insurance, so that means they're recently out of the, the workforce, um, it goes up to 20%. So these are people who we would consider still part of the active labor force. And what it means is that a job isn't enough anymore to save you a trip to the food bank, to put food on the table for your families. So, um, you know, we don't have supports in this country that were built for the current um, labor force. You know, we've got the gig economy. We've got, you know, way more precarious work um, than when, when most of our supports were built, which was in the 90s and you had you know, a different type of job, a more steady sort of 40 hours a week. So we need to figure out solutions, in particular reforms to EI that will help people get back on their feet so that losing your job doesn't mean you're going to have to, you know, rely on the food bank and no one who is employed should be going to the food bank. And that's that's simply the reality. And the other one you mentioned is seniors. So it makes sense. It's an income equation, but we're also focused on the affordability side of the equation as well, because, you know, you've got seniors who are on fixed incomes. And prior to the pandemic, probably we're making it work, paying whether that's a mortgage or rent, you know, paying their utilities, putting food on the table, and they simply aren't able to do that anymore. So incomes aren't keeping pace with the growing costs. And 
I mean, no one wants more seniors having to make that trip to the food bank. So we need to find solutions that allow them to, whether that's bringing, you know, affordable housing, some, some rent relief into people's bank accounts or bringing up those fixed incomes. We need to find solutions. Um, students, as you said, another one, post-secondary students. I mean, that's heartbreaking. These are, these are the future. These are the kids who should be focused on their studies so they can solve, you know, all the big problems we've got. And yet we've got a growing number of post-secondary students who are going to class hungry and having to rely on campus food banks. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a devastating, it's a really heartbreaking report. This yeah. Year. The numbers are really disturbing. And the fact that this is the, it's the highest use of, uh, food banks in Canadian history. Uh, this should be a um, primary issue of commitment to all levels of government. And people say, well, government can't do everything, but government can pragmatically address issues of great concern. And uh, as you write, uh, as your report suggests, Food Bank Canada's Hunger Count 2022 report is a devastating wake-up call for all people living in Canada and our governments that we must take action to starve the hunger that is destroying communities and lives. Who do you rely on? Who, who do you, I mean, who supports the food banks? And where's your breaking point? Yeah, I, I mean, here's, here's what I know. If you... I'm not I'm not without concern that the system won't be able to meet. If this keeps growing, food banks cannot simply be called on to just meet the next, you know, another 30% wave of need. I mean, it's just not a realistic request. But I do know that food banks are tough and food bankers are out there right now rolling up their sleeves and making sure that the shelves are stocked for the for the months ahead and we'll keep doing that work. But at some point, we need to see the number of people relying on us coming down. And, you know, I think we we feel the generosity of Canadians from all walks of life. And, you know, if you are in a position to give, that's always greatly appreciated. What we also need is people to lend their voice to getting governments to take action. As you say, it's all levels of government. It's not a partisan issue. There are, you know, every party has a role, you know, has a way into this issue to make things better for people in need. And so we need all of us because, quite frankly, the politicians are going to act if we make it unavoidable for them to act. And I really think hunger is an issue that sometimes suffers in silence and we don't yeah. see the devastating impact it's having. But these numbers are unavoidable. This no. is not a good situation. Andy McDonald of Hamilton is an end-stage palliative care patient who has legally requested medically assisted death, and uh, Andy is waiting for final assent. And uh, he also invited Dr. Stephanie Green, the president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers, medical advisor to the British Columbia Ministry of Health, and author of This is Assisted Dying, also a professor at the University of British Columbia, to come to Hamilton, which is where Andy is, and uh, do medical rounds and speak to the public. And Dr. Green actually is on the phone with us as she's getting onto an aircraft uh, preparing to come to Hamilton. So thank you both. Andy, um, glad to talk to you after we spoke uh, yesterday. And you and I, of course, spoke many years ago on my program. I don't want to ask you how you are, but... How's your day? My day's great, Roy. Thank you. I'm just a short of breath. My lungs are failing, so I will uh, be glad to speak with you. Yeah, the health challenges you live with every day are of such a significance that uh, 
that you've decided the best the best thing for you, the very best thing for you, is medically assisted death. Tough, a very decision. Andy, is it an extremely difficult decision to make, or do you get to a point in your in your life where you say, "This is this is all. This is what I want." Well, Roy, I've worked in healthcare for thirty five years, or both in Vancouver, in San Francisco, and here in Hamilton. And I had to give myself a kick in the denial butt to come to terms with my own downward health status. Um, so I read uh, Dr. Green's book, gave it lots of thought, and then I applied for MAID uh, April 14th exactly. And I've, I've been met with the first assessment team, and they promoted me to track two second assessment, which will happen sometime in November, I expect. Now, you asked about my, uh, my challenges. Well, I live alone with uh, no outreach for family. I live in adult diapers due to incontinence. I eat baby food because uh, of swallowing problems. I sleep on a camping cot in my living room due to falling out of bed problems. I keep a potty chair nearby at all times. I use several mobility aids due to imbalance. My lungs, as I mentioned, are failing, especially every time antibiotics are used and leave me with scar tissue in my lungs. Uh, primarily, though, nerve pain due to post-shingles um, neuralgia at the T3, T4 spine location, mm-hmm. which has been damaged. Mm-hmm. which uh, morphine isn't even helping. And narcotics, as we know, relieve pain up to a point. Uh, they stop working after uh, using them for a long time because of what's called habituation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about made in Canada. Right. Well, and we do have, Andy, we do have Dr. Green uh, on the line. As oh, yeah, she's right. on an aircraft, getting ready to come and see you, and come yeah. to, and come to Hamilton, Dr. Green, uh, say hello to Andy. Uh, Andy, I'm looking forward to meeting you today. Hi, Dr. Green. Hi there, Dr. Green. As you heard Andy just now, and and you know his story from his contact with you. Yes. Um, would you please just share with us what it is that that. And you understand the situation better than most. What causes um, Andy or another human being to say, I've suffered enough. I'm now at a stage where I just can't and don't want to continue. Right. So I, I'm not going to speak on Andy's case, of course, because that's, that's for Andy to tell. It's, it's Andy's story. But I think in general, what we do is we, you know, it's so individual. Right? It, it, it's almost impossible to answer that question in generalities because every case is so different and every person is so different and everybody's limit is so different. I see patients who come to me when they're quite certain that they've, they've reached their final stage. You know, one of the criteria that needs to be true is that they need to be suffering intolerably. And when they reach that stage, they, they, they come and they seek help. So every case is really, really, really very different. Mm-hmm. Andy, do you want to uh, speak to Dr. Green while we're on the air? Uh, yes, Dr. Green. Uh, I've been reading uh, the National Post that uh, says that there's a shortage of doctors um, providing MAID, and um, I was reading that the number of MAID deaths has grown from just over a thousand in in 2016, and and now it's over 31,000 by the end of 2021. 
Right. Well, I think it's a good question. Sorry for the sound. It's uh, it's a good question. I think some people were concerned that there's some sort of slippery slope happening. But in fact, when something is new uh, and newly available and few people know about it, uh, then we don't see a lot of it happening. As people become aware of the service, as people become to, begin to understand the service, as some doctors begin to provide the service, we see more of it happening. And in fact, when we compare what's happening in Canada compared to maybe a country like the Netherlands, where it's been happening for 20 years, our numbers are nowhere near as high as theirs in terms of percentage per capita. Um, you know, six years in, 3.3% of all annual deaths in Canada are attributed to assisted dying. In the Netherlands, where it's been going on for 20 years, uh, depending on the year you look at, it's plateaued somewhere between 4 and 4.5%. So I think six years in, we're exactly where we thought we would be. But I think you raise a really good point. We, we don't have enough clinicians doing this work. Uh, and that's something that I hope my organization will help address and, uh, and help teach about. I speak about, I teach about. I, I'd like more physicians to be comfortable stepping into the arena and learning about this care and, uh, and hopefully being able to provide it for their own patient load at the very least. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.